Welcome to the Mission of Truth podcast, where Super Bowl champions Nick Foles and Chris Maragos dive deep into the trials and victories that are behind all of the lights. Here's your hosts, Nick Foles and Chris Maragos. Today's guest is a two-time Super Bowl champion, one as a player and one as a head coach. He is a Hall of Fame head coach, as well as a member of the NFL's 2000s All-Decade team. Welcome to the Mission of Truth, our guest and friend, Coach Tony Dungy. Right. Hey, thank you very much, guys. Thanks. It is awesome to be with you. Good, no, good to have you on here. I'll tell you what, Coach. We we thought about that introduction. We actually had a we had like four pages of an introduction. You have so many awards, <laughs> <laughs> you have so many awards and things uh, that you accomplished. It's amazing. We it's it's we kind of we left out so many great, amazing things too. No, you talk about blessings. Just so many things have happened in my life and things that. Uh, you know, you couldn't even plan and script out if you wanted to. So uh, I, I just really feel grateful and, and uh, just feel like the Lord has been with me. Oh, absolutely. Well, we're going to get into a lot of the different things along your journey that we're so excited to talk about. But I, I sort of want to go back to a story. Um, you know, Super Bowl 52, uh, we're, you know, media day, there's different things going on. Uh, your son, Justin, was the kid reporter for NBC during the week asking questions going around. And guys were nervous because he was asking great questions. And then he's your son as well. Um, you know, that that was such an amazing experience seeing that. But then also after the game, um, I, I remember and you've been there as well, like the, the, the clock hits zero. It's chaos. There's media. I mean, I remember I don't even think I was back to the locker room until three hours later. I had missed the celebration. Um, but there's a couple of guys still in the locker room waiting, took off the pads. We went to the training room and it was a really special moment um, where you and Justin came in and there was a couple of guys in there, some trainers. And it was really neat that we got to share that moment together just because you're someone I've always admired and looked up to. And personally, my, my mom has always given me your books to read um, and has always admired you um, from her perspective. So that meant a lot, and I want to share that. But then also, as I talked to you about your son, Justin, during that week, can you share with him your message you had for him while being at the Super Bowl and while he's reporting and seeing all this star-studded celebration? Yeah, it was, it was really special, and uh, it kind of started um, in you guys' first playoff game. He came with me. We're broadcasting the game, and he got to meet you, Nick, you know, after the game, and he was really excited. And then we come back for the championship game, and – He's a little bit more excited. Now he's on the Eagles bandwagon. And uh, then he got to do this for the whole week for NBC and, you know, getting all this kind of notoriety as an 11-year-old. And he's interviewing Justin Timberlake and the commissioner and Tom Brady and doing things that no 11-year-old would, would get to do. And I just kept telling him how blessed he is, how God's smiling on him. And then after the game, we wanted to come in. He wanted to come in and say hi to you guys. And, of course – the, uh, at that point, everything is on credentials and, and everything. And he didn't have his media credentials, so we couldn't get in. Well, Nelson Aguilar happened to be our neighbor from Tampa. And Nelson just happened to be coming out of the locker room at that time. And he said, oh, you got to let uh, Coach Dungey in with his son. And it was just, it was God's providence. We got in, the security guy let us in. And I was looking for you guys. And you were back in the training room. You and Carson and Nate Sudfeld and uh, Zach Ertz. And 
I got a chance to take him back there. You guys were praying, and it was just the special moment. Hey, Justin, with all this that's gone on and all the great things, and these guys have just won, but here's what's really important to them. They are trying to honor the Lord in this, and this is what it's all about. And he got to take a picture with you guys, and that has stuck in his mind ever since that, yes, the, the Super Bowl trophy is great, and yes, all the confetti and everything that leads up to it, But the real special moment was in there saying, you know, why did we do this? We did this because we wanted to honor the Lord. And it was a lesson he'll he'll never forget. Wow, that's pretty special. I'll tell you those moments, too. You know, I have two sons as well, too. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And even those life lessons, too. And something as what we put on our culture as big as a Super Bowl, you know, to show that there's something greater than that. And then to see a guy and that was really what special is to watch Carson and Nick and all these guys you know, that we're playing, you know, and, and having the opportunity that season, um, you know, just to glorify God through it and know that there's something greater than that. That was, that was truly special, truly, truly. Well, and I, I, you know, to finish up that story too, I was with you guys for, for three weeks because we had the first playoff game and we knew we were going to have the Super Bowl if you got there. So my bosses at NBC basically just said, just stay there and hang out. You'll get interviews. You'll get ready for the pregame show. And so I got to to see what was going on in that Philadelphia locker room. And I remember coming back and saying on our pregame show, I think the Eagles are going to win. They've got a spirit. They've got something going on that's special. They're united. Uh, They've got a bigger purpose than just winning the Super Bowl. And uh, I I said that uh, Nick was going to play well and, and probably be the MVP of the game because of his faith in the Lord that he told me. He felt like God had him there for a special reason. And I said that on the air and people were very critical. Oh, you shouldn't bring religion into this. What are you doing? You, you, you're biased and you're bringing your faith in. And I said, no, I'm just reporting on what I believe. And it was, it was something very tangible. You could see it. You could feel it. And I was on teams like that where the spirit of the Lord was just there and it was special. So it, it just made me feel good and made me, uh, grateful that I was able to broadcast that. No, and to, to add to what you were just talking about, I think what, you know, listeners say, because I remember uh, when you said that, because I think my wife or my mom said something like that, and uh, you were the only one that, that believed. Um, and a lot of people were like, oh, so it's just because they believe in Jesus and believe in the Lord. It's like, no, it, it's not that. It's We're not doing it to glorify ourselves. We're doing it to glorify Him. And when you talk about this team, uh, there was a lot of guys who believe in the Lord on team, but there was a lot of guys who don't believe in the Lord on team. That's why I always tell people is the thing is the team served each other. We loved each yes. other. We had a great heart. It, it wasn't necessarily like, Oh, we had more Christians or it was just, there was a great heart where guys were serving guys were loving guys were open and honest. If there was an issue on the team, we would have a team meeting and we would talk about it. So it wouldn't fester. Cause we all know when thing, when you don't talk about things and bring them to light, they fester and become bigger than they ever should have been. And that was what was so special about that team and that journey. And then ultimately um, getting to that stage. And when we did win, there were so many guys were like, you know what? Like right after when the confetti is coming down, it's like we get an opportunity on one of the greatest stages in sports to go up there and glorify God and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. All glory to God for being here because it's for a purpose. But then also the message is, Life does go on after that pinnacle. Like it, it's not like all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. every day you're going to hoist the Lombardi. You know, there's loss, there's heartache, there's struggle. But we have a Savior that walks alongside us and, and paid the price for all of us um, to have eternal life and live that. So that, that's just a great message. And we're starting out hot and I love it. 
Um, but truly special. And Tony, coach, coach, you, you grew up in Michigan, you start at Minnesota and you know, you start your career out with a team in the seventies with the Pittsburgh Steelers and talk to us about being a part of those great teams. And, and obviously you got an opportunity to win a Super Bowl, being a part of that, that 78 team and yeah. uh, man, share with us about how that helped mold and shape and really start out the foundation of your career early on as a player. Chris, it, it was an impact in my whole life and it was so far outside of my plan. Um, I, I can look back on it now and see exactly what God had in mind. But at the time it was just crazy. I was a, uh, was a quarterback my whole life, grew up in high school in Michigan, uh, Michigan and Michigan state were the dominant forces in the, in the big 10 at that time. I grew up 30 miles from each campus, everything told my mom went to Michigan state. My dad went to Michigan. Everything would have told you that I should have gone to one of those two schools. Right, right, right. Uh, it, it didn't work out that way. I went to Minnesota. I wanted to play quarterback. I ended up leading the big 10 and passing twice. And I thought I was going to be an NFL quarterback. And when the draft came around in 1977, I didn't get selected. And I was crushed probably the first time in my athletic career that it, it wasn't a success. Right. And uh, I was a, a Christian at that time, but I had kind of put the Lord on the back burner. I focused in on my sports and, and on my education. And people would have said, yeah, nice guy. But nobody would have said, oh, that, that's a strong Christian. But when I didn't get drafted, I remember walking outside of my apartment and talking to the Lord. And I wasn't really asking him. I was just venting. I, I don't understand this. I worked hard. I did everything I should do. Guys got drafted who I know I'm better than they are. Right. What, what happened, Lord? Why did you do this to me? And two days later, Pittsburgh Steelers called mm-hmm. and they said, hey, we've got Terry Bradshaw. We don't need any more quarterbacks, but Coach Noel thinks you can switch positions. And something, I, I can't even explain it to this day. Something inside of me just said, hey, I don't care about switching positions. I want to play with the best. And the Steelers are the best, so I'm going. And it it made no sense. I ended up going. I'd never played defense in my life. They moved me to safety. They had 10 guys on the previous year's team that were in the Pro Bowl on defense. Only one guy wasn't. I mean, they had this cast that there's no way I'm going to make the team. But I went because I, I just wanted to be there. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. The, the first meeting I sat down with my notebook out and Coach Noel welcomed us in that minicamp. He said, welcome to the National Football League. You're now getting paid to play football, but don't make football your life. Football cannot be your whole life. If it is, you're going to leave the game disappointed. He said, my job is to help you find what you want to do in life, what's going to satisfy you. I'm like, wow, this is a guy who's won two Super Bowls already <laughs> saying don't make football your whole life. I'd never heard a coach talk like that. Right. Well, then he switches me. He, he puts me in a room with Donnie Shell in training camp. Mm-hmm. Hey, stick with this guy. He's a great safety. He'll teach you how to play the game. You don't know a lot about it. Just watch him. Mm-hmm. So I am unloading my stuff and put my uh, suitcases away and getting my clothes out. And he's asking, hey, what are you reading? What do you mean, what am I reading? What are you reading? I'm reading the playbook. I'm trying to learn how to play safety. Right. Yeah, exactly. What are, you yeah. <laughs> what are you reading in the Bible? So I'm uh-huh. not reading anything. I'm trying to read the playbook to yeah, know what I'm right. doing. And he is like, no, you don't understand. You have to have your life in order. You've got to have God behind you. He'd end up being he's the most on-fire Christian athlete I'd ever been around. So now I've got Coach Noel telling me this. Uh, I've got a, a Christian roommate. Donnie invites me to Bible study. Hey, you got to start coming to Bible study. We meet after the evening meetings. 
and we got 15, 18 guys in there. And I'm thinking I'm coming to the steel curtain, this big, bad, brutish team. And they were, you know, they were tough and they were, you know, 10 Hall of Famers. But so many guys on fire for the Lord. And it changed my life around. Uh, One of the first Bible studies I went to, the chaplain is giving this message about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And he says, hey, in a race, only one person wins first prize. So run to win. And I remember that blew me away because I'd, you know, been a Christian and just heard people, oh, God wants you to do your best. Don't worry about it. He said, no, Paul says run to win. But then he went on and saying, make sure you're running the right race. Athletes run to win. The prize fades away quickly. You need to run to win in life and make sure you've got that going. And that impacted me. So I'm with these guys and growing. and, And that's when I really started growing as a man and as a Christian at 21 years old. Wow. Unbelievable. And, you know, those those examples and those moments that you learned uh, while you were playing obviously helped you while you were a coach. Can you share with us a little bit, you know, about Coach Noel and kind of what he's, you know, implemented in you and how he's poured so much into you and how that's influenced your coaching career? And specifically, I know the Tampa 2 defense, because when I was (laughs) when I was a part of the Seahawks, uh, you know, n- now everybody says, oh, the Seahawks cover three or, or Seattle's cover yeah. three. But but even now to this day, you, you know, I just finished, you know, a year ago and it's still the Tampa two. You know, can you can you share Coach Noel and, and, and what he's given you in terms of inspiration and, and how he's poured into you and inspired that? And then also the implementation of the Tampa two defense from that. Absolutely, Chris. He had so many just pertinent sayings. He would just drill into you and it was just so meaningful. And I remember him saying, after he told us not to make football our whole life, the next thing he said was champions. And they'd been champions already two times. And he said, champions don't do extraordinary things. Champions do the ordinary things better than everyone else. Uh We're going to be built on fundamentals, the little details. Our first practice every year, the whole 10 years I was there, 45 minutes of the first practice was called block and tackle by the numbers. Number one was your stance. He put every guy on the team in a stance and he'd adjust it and get it just right. Then number two was your approach and three was contact and four was follow through. And he took every guy through Joe Green and some of these guys have been 10 time pro bowlers and they're getting down in the stance and they're making (laughs) contact and they're following through. And that's, but that's what we're going to be. We're going to be fundamentally sound. We're going to do the little things right. And then one of the next things he said was, Pressure is what you feel when you don't know what to do. Oh, wow. So if, if we know what to do, we're never going to feel pressure. doesn't matter what the situation is, regular season game, playoff game, Super Bowl. As long as we know what to do, we shouldn't feel pressure. So that was what he was pumping into us, for, to me, for 10 years. Don't make football your whole life. Find something that's going to fulfill you away from the game. Take care of the fundamentals and the details and the little ordinary things and know what to do. And if we do those things, we're going to be champion. Wow. And that stuck with me my whole career. Wow. And then the Tampa two defense kind of spawns <laughs> a little bit out of that. I mean, tell us how that gets implemented. I mean, how do you, how are you tweaking this thing? I mean, I, I almost see you like, you know, you're taking what you learn from great defenses, great coaches, and then you're fine tuning it probably with Monty Kiffin. Right. And, you know, you're kind of trying to figure out and, and, and perfect this defense that everybody's using now. And, I mean, gosh, when you guys are running that thing, it is so hard to stop. I mean, you, you, you can't get past it. 
we we played. Uh, Bud Carson was actually the defensive coordinator in in, in uh, Pittsburgh. He brought cover two to the Steelers in 1972, and put it in. And they played it, and Coach Noel loved it, and they perfected it. And we had big corners. Mel Blunt was six four, about 220 pounds. J.T. Thomas was six two, two fifteen. So those guys, and back then. It's They're not deep. like it was today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. could manhandle receivers. You could pound them, and they did. And so that became our, our trademark. But uh, as time went on, people got away from it. Well, that was my my base. That's what I learned. I was a safety. I actually led the team in interception my second year there because the corners were banging people up. I was sitting back in the back just intercepting hey, that, over. Hey, them corners get those reroutes. That's a that's a big deal now. <laughs> Takes yeah. a stretch off. Yeah. So I was I was the beneficiary of that, and I said I kind of like this. this. This is pretty good. So yeah. I ended up getting traded to the San Francisco 49ers, getting traded to the Giants, getting cut, coming back to coach for the Steelers. So I coached eight more years. I get it in me. This, this is ingrained fundamentals, little details, cover two. Well, nobody hardly is playing this. I uh, go to Kansas City. I become an assistant coach there. We didn't play a very little bit of cover two. Then Denny Green in 1993 hired me, uh, 92, to be his defensive coordinator. And he said, you can do what you want. So I say, hey, I'm going back to my roots. We're going to play cover two. Monty Kiffin was the linebacker coach there. He had never seen it, never played it before. And he said, oh, you're going to put in something totally different. I said, no, Monty, we'll do what you do in the run game, but let me just do this in the passing game. So we took his one gap front and we merged it with my cover two that I learned from the Steelers and we had a lot of success we ended up leading the league in defense in, in Minnesota of course we had John Randall and Chris Dolman and some really really great players but it became uh really Minnesota where it, it took off wow. and then I went to Tampa and put it in and that's when people recognized it but it really started in Pittsburgh 20 years before Tampa too wow how about that the history of the defense is always fascinating, and they're they're always evolving. And from a quarterback's perspective, I mean, it makes it so difficult now because teams are going to switch. You know, now they'll they'll switch in cover two, they'll switch in Tampa yeah. two, they'll switch in cover three, and then there's all these different types of cover three. There's all these types of uh, cover one and robber and hole and cover zero. So that's what people don't realize. Sometimes I explain to my dad, you know, this is what's going through my head. Like not only do I have the play call, but then if they give us a different defense, would say have, I might have to check the play or audible the play. And then when I snap the ball, sometimes the safety switch and then it switches everything. So my mind has to switch. So yeah. the aspects of football and the history, I love, you know, when I played with like coach Andy Reed and, you know, Doug Peterson, and Matt Nagy, they love giving the history of why this play came to be. And then it helps me teach it. Um, so I yeah. love listening to it, but I'm gonna go back to um, Super Bowl 13, and there was something you shared with us about uh, the chapel service before the Super Bowl. The chapel speaker was talking about this is a significant moment in your life, and a lot of listeners are like, "Well, yeah, you're playing in the Super Bowl. This is everyone's dream. That's a significant moment." But that's not quite what the chapel, um, the pastor was talking about. Can you share with our listeners what was really yeah. happening? Yeah, we had a chapel service, you know, four and a half hours before the game. Coach Noel was big on routine, and so he wasn't going to change it, even though this was a Super Bowl. That's what we always did. Four and a half hours before the game, chapel. Four hours before the game, pregame meal. So we're in the chapel service, and it is a huge game. 13th Super Bowl, 
Pittsburgh's won two. Dallas has won two. Nobody's ever won three. Whoever wins this game is going to be the team of the decade, the team of the century, the team of the 70s. And uh, this was the most hyped Super Bowl of those 13. It was a rematch, all just so much drama. And I remember sitting there and Doc Eshelman was the, the chapel speaker. And Doc said, hey, this is a huge game. It's going to be watched by more people than any sporting event, any TV show ever. One of you two is going to be the greatest team of, of so far of all time. But you know what? It's really not that significant because five years from now, nobody's going to know who won. And we're like, what? And then he said, all right, think back. Tell me who won Super Bowl Eight." And we had to sit there and think, yeah, okay, well, that, no, it wasn't them. And we realized he was right. No matter how big it seems, no matter what the hype, um, you know, there's going to be more games. There's going to be different things that come. And so he, he said something that my mom had said way back when I was a kid, and it didn't really register on me till then. He said, you know what? You can get all of this. You can have multiple Super Bowls. You can get Lombardi trophies, Super Bowl rings, big contracts. And if your life is not right, if your soul is not right, you're going to be very, very disappointed at the end because it's not going to matter. And that was my mom's favorite verse in the Bible. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And he said, if you go out there and forfeit your soul for this win, uh, you're going to be in bad shape because this win and all the notoriety isn't going to last. And you guys know it. That confetti comes down and you, you revel in it. But then life goes on. And for me, it was coming back to the locker room. Um, the Steelers lockers were in numerical order. So I'm a backup safety. But I'm in between Terry Bradshaw and Rocky Blyer and Franco Harris. And so I'm just sitting there listening. And the reporters are coming in just asking these guys. We hadn't been in the locker room two minutes. Hey, you guys have won three. Do you think you can win next year? Do you think you can repeat? What's the chances? What does the future look like? And I'm saying, man. I can't even enjoy this game. This is exactly what the chapel speaker talked about. It, it, this game is not even over, and they're talking about next year. So it just hit me right then that all, just like Paul said, it's temporary. That, that first place ring that you're going after, that gold medal, is just temporary. Wow. No, that's so true. And, I, we, I mean, Chris and I both experienced the same thing. I think, you know, when we were on that journey together um, in, you know, 2017, 2018 I remember talking to my wife Tori um before the the playoff run and she you know there's a lot of criticism um from me personally um everyone was doubting all those different things we've talked about it and she sort of asked me she's like well what do you think will happen because I mean she's wondering like man are we even going to make it to the first game against Atlanta and I said well you know there's a lot of criticism no one believes uh we have posters all over our our facility of like how everyone's doubting us but honestly I think God's gonna be glorified I think we're gonna win this thing She's like, like the playoff game against Atlanta. Uh, no, I, I think we're going to win. The, and this is like behind closed doors. Like I didn't go public. I said, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, the, the pressure's too, so great. Like I'm, I'm leaning on the Lord. I'm trusting him. I don't know what happens. If we lose to Atlanta, I'll glorify him. It doesn't matter. But I just, there's something in me that says this journey is going to be wild, but we're, we're going to glorify him and we'll have an opportunity to win the Super Bowl. And she thought I was crazy. She's like, wait, people think you're not even, you might not even start the first game because they're going to bench you. And you think you're going to win the Super Bowl? I was like, it's not for me. It's to glorify God. But listen to this. This is my issue, Tori. We're going to, if we do win the game, watch how quickly people want to go to the next one. 
And sure enough, I'm not going to name names, but two days later, a prominent figure within the organization I was playing at came up to me, hugged me and said, man, now we're going after number two. Let's go. And I remember saying like the team, this is the first Super Bowl championship for the Philadelphia Eagles. This isn't enough. I was like, I- I'm enjoying this. I'm thanking the Lord. I'm about to go play some pickleball in the gym right now, like to celebrate. Like, I'm just going to take a breath. This year has been crazy. I'm going to play pickleball and listen to some country music and some Christian music. That's what I'm going to do. But I just laugh because that's, that's so true. And that's a message for a lot of people that have idols in this world is like they, they won't fulfill you. And this is coming from everyone on this 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 call or this this podcast has been a Super Bowl champ and it doesn't fulfill but now I want to go back to after the Super Bowl season for us in 2018. So you had come out to a training camp practice or a off-season practice. Yeah. And I, I had the pleasure of speaking with you once again after practice. And um, we were talking about how the process of writing a book and having a writer to go alongside you, the hours that you put in, the book tour with Todd Starowitz, like how Todd, you know, the journey, giving <laughs> yep. a shout out to Todd. So Todd, I know Todd's going to smile T-Star. when he listens to this. T-Star. <laughs> Um, and then one thing I want to talk to you about, and it's fascinating me is culture. And you're, you're a man that's impacted a lot of different cultures in a lot of different ways. Um, whether you're a player or coach or on TV or in your church or in your community, you, you constantly glorify God by impacting them. But there's a thing, there's culture. Um, can you share with our listeners, like what culture means to you? And more importantly, like what it means to be a man in this culture now in this society. And there, there was a, a team meeting, your first team meeting from Tampa Bay, where I know you gave a message. So I know there's a lot packed in that question, but yeah. I don't know. I'm just excited to hear your, what you have to say. No, the, it really, again, stems back to Coach Noel. And when I got there, I could feel a championship culture in Pittsburgh. It, no question about it. I hadn't really been on a championship team before in high school, college. I'd been on some good teams. But when I got there, the way things operated, I said, this is a championship team. And he created that culture. He took a one and 13 team and made it so confident and made it so together that you came in and you felt like you were going to win. So I wanted to, as I became a coach and I realized that that was my career, that's what I wanted to do, help create that championship culture. But from my time in Pittsburgh, I realized that you couldn't just be champions on the field. If you didn't have that culture off the field, in the locker room, and impacting your community, uh, it, it wasn't going to be good. It wasn't going to be long-lasting. So when I got to the point where I could create it myself, where I was in charge, I wanted to build a championship culture on and off the field. And I remember my first meeting with uh, the Buccaneers. I said, I want to be impacting just like Coach Noel was impacting for me. And so – I talked that they had had 13 straight losing seasons when I got there. And I said, Hey, the reason I'm your new head coach is we haven't been winning. So we've got to win. There's no question about that. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help bring a Super Bowl. But that's not the only reason I'm here. And to be honest with you, men, that's not the biggest reason I'm here. I'm here to help you like my head coach helped me to find out who you are as men. I want you to make a difference in this community, make Tampa a better place to live. I've got young boys. They watch you. They look at you. They do everything you do. I don't want to have to tell them, oh, don't look at that, this guy. Don't look at that guy. Don't be like him. You know, I know what he's really like. Don't pick someone else. No, I want them to pick any guy on our team and say, I want to be like him and I want to feel good about that. That's what we need to do. And I talked for about 
45 minutes in that first meeting. I talked 10 seconds about winning a Super Bowl and the other 44 minutes about how we're going to do it and the type of men we're going to be and the type of culture we're going to have. And Derek Brooks, I'll never forget this. He and I laugh about this now. He was a second-year player uh, from Florida State. He'd been a uh, champion, state champion in high school, national champion at Florida State. He came into my office after the meeting. He said, you know what? I lost more games last year than I've lost in my whole life. You need to tell us about winning. <laughs> and I said, Derek, <laughs> I did tell you about winning. That's just how we're going to do it. Everything I talked about, that's how <laughs> we're going to win. Right. Well, it took him a while to, to believe in that and buy into it. But about six months later, he came back into my office and he said, you know, coach, I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying. Uh, I've been hanging out at this boys and girls club in, in downtown Tampa and there's some kids that need some direction. I want to do something more than just give away tickets. I, I, I want to impact some people's lives. And he started a group that year called the Brooks Bunch. And he started pouring into those kids and saying, hey, I'm going to do things for you. I'm going to set up some special things for you if you commit to what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. No unexcused absences from school. No trouble with the law. No drugs and alcohol. No disrespect to parents. No disrespect to teachers. 3.5 grade average. Wow. Well, now some of those kids are coming out of law school and wow. coming out of uh, medical school that had never had that type of challenge before. And he and I joke all the time now. And say, Derek, do you understand what winning is now? You say, yeah, coach, I, I got you. I know what winning <laughs> yeah. is. That's so good. Um, and you and you built a great foundation in Tampa Bay, uh, and you had a, a lot of great teams. Can you tell us about the transition from Tampa Bay, you, you're, you're building the culture, you have great moments in Tampa Bay and maybe some of, you know, the, the difficulties of not maybe being able to, you know, see it through, but then also being excited about going to Indy in that transition. Yeah, that's where you really have to trust the Lord. Uh, I had some the most wonderful time in my life in Tampa, but then you have one of your biggest disappointments. Uh, we went from 13 straight losing seasons to, being in the playoffs every year right. to being a couple plays away from the Super Bowl. 1999, we lost a game 11 to six in the championship game to go to the Super Bowl. Wow. And our owners were really, really disappointed. And they came to me and said, I want you to fire the offensive coordinator because if we'd have scored one touchdown, we would have been in the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And I was still a young coach at the time. And I, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. I knew Mike Shula had done a tremendous job for us. But I said, hey, these are the bosses. That's what they want. And uh, I went in and Mike, to his credit, said, no, don't don't lose your job. Don't have other people lose their job. I'll resign. But that was probably the biggest mistake I ever made in my coaching career because it went against everything I had preached about being together and we're a unit and we win together and we lose together and, and we've got to stay accountable to each other. So Mike resigned, and the next couple of years, we still did well. We made the playoffs, but we never got to the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And I remember the owners coming to me after we lost a playoff game to the Eagles and Coach Reed, and the owners saying, we're going to go in another direction because we don't think you can get us over the top. And I remember saying, Lord, I thought this was you. I thought we were in this together. You brought us all down here to create something special, to create a culture, to honor you. Uh, but by that time, I was mature enough, Chris, where I said, you know, what are you trying to show us in this, Lord? What are you trying to show me, my staff, our players? Uh, and right after that, Jim Irsay, the owner of the Colts, called and he said, 
I want a culture like you have in Tampa. I want you to come build that here. And uh, I, I ended up taking a job in Indianapolis. Well, the next year, the Bucks won the Super Bowl. I remember, yeah. And it was bittersweet. I felt like Moses, who got almost there and didn't quite get there. And I was happy for them because that's what we set out to do. And I wanted to see those guys win. But I was so disappointed that I, I didn't get there with them. But I knew God had something special. And, and he created it that way. So we had some more disappointments in, in Indianapolis, but we kept building the culture, creating the culture. And uh, one of the things I can tell you about the culture there that was so different, uh, when I got to Indianapolis, um, I, I just talked about making it family-friendly and kid-friendly. And the kids were going to be there. My, my boys now were at the age where uh, they were around all the time. And uh, the equipment man told me after I kind of made that speech, he said, you know what? We had a situation here. Kids weren't allowed in the building. And this is going to be different for everybody here. Well, by the time I left, kids were all over the building and we'd won a Super Bowl <laughs> that way. Um, and, and so uh, changing the culture there and letting them know that uh, you could honor the Lord and still be successful. Uh, that was probably my biggest satisfaction. And you, and, you, and you certainly did change that culture. And because of that, you went on in 2006 season uh, to win the Super Bowl and you become the first African-American head coach ever to win a Super Bowl. What, what did that mean to you and, and to be validated for building that culture? And then obviously, you know, to do unprecedented things, you know, being the first African-American person uh, as a head coach to ever win and, and to kind of, you know, solidify and stamp that and, and to do, uh, you know, kind of as a trailblazer, what a lot of set out to do and still continue to do. You know, it, I just felt good about God giving me that opportunity. Uh, when I came in the league as a player in 1977, there were only 10 African-American coaches in the entire league, assistant coaches, no head coaches at all, 10 assistant coaches, 18 teams didn't even have a minority assistant coach on the staff. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's the era I grew up in, but it was kind of normal. But I look back at my dad, uh, my dad, uh, was born in 1926, and he enlisted in the service in 1944 at the end of World War II because he wanted to help the country. He wanted to be in the Air Force, and the Air Force was still segregated. He wow. wasn't allowed to join the regular Air Force. So wow. he had to go to Tuskegee, Alabama, to an all-black unit called the Tuskegee Airmen. And he fought with the Airmen, finished the war, and then came back and got his uh, degree and was not able to teach in a segre or in an integrated school. He had to teach in the all-black school, his first teaching job in Washington, D.C. Wow. And he would tell me things like that, but still talk about, hey, look forward. Don't make excuses. Don't let things bother you. Do what you can to make things better. And that's what he always told me. And my mom always said, if you honor the Lord, the Lord's going to honor you. And so coming up in an era when there weren't a lot of African-American head coaches, I just kept that in mind and kept pushing forward. And uh, I'll never forget, we, we ended up winning that Super Bowl. Jim Nance asked me on the podium what it felt like to be the first African-American. I thought of my dad and I thought of uh, coaches before me who had sacrificed and never quite got the opportunity. And I said, Jim, I'm really proud to be the first. I wasn't the best. I don't deserve to be the first. There are other guys who could have done it that didn't get the opportunity, but I feel like I'm representing them. But it's more important for me to represent Christ and be a Christian along with Lovey Smith. We're the first two African-Americans to coach in the Super Bowl, but also Christians 
and leading our teens that way. Well, the next day, you get the phone call from President Bush, and he invites the team to the White House. And I'll never forget, we came back later on in the spring, we're flying in, we land in, in Arlington, Virginia, and we're driving into the White House. And I'm thinking, man, one generation ago, my dad couldn't ride this bus at all. He couldn't teach in an all-white school. And one generation later, look what God's done. I'm riding in the front seat of the first bus wow. going to the White House. Wow. How great is God? Wow. It truly is amazing. And and it's amazing what he's been able to do through someone like you who's been faithful. And and you've stewarded what he's given you so well. And, and that's why he's given you so many great things because you've, you've laid the rough foundation and, and you've, you've given him the glory through it. And I even think too about the success you had. I think, I think I read something. It was like 10 straight years of, of playoff appearances, you know, just sustained success and just truly remarkable what you've been able to accomplish as a coach and player. And, and, you know, to have that much success for so long in the NFL, I, I played with a guy at Spikes uh, in San Francisco, my rookie season. I think he was at that point, 14 years in the NFL and he hadn't even been to a playoff game at that point in his career. Uh, yes. And for you to sustain that success and to have that, uh, it's truly a testament to the man you are and the foundations you've, you've poured. So we've all, we've all benefited from it. Uh, believe me, as uh, your ripple effect, even when I played in the league too, has, has definitely had that, that effect on my career too. So we appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you. And you're not slowing down. That's the thing is a lot of people think uh, when you when you retire from the NFL or you retire from coaching, you know, you just don't do anything. You still continue to you know you're on TV. Um, you're you're making controversial picks, uh, you know, but you're, you're continuing to impact. You're continuing to love your community. You're continuing to, you know, blaze these trails for everyone while, you know, while most importantly glorifying God. And that's what I love that you said is all these different things happen, but the most important thing was to represent Christ. And, uh, you know, one of our final questions, you know, I would, I would just ask you, what has God had on your heart in this year, 2020 that, you know, you'd love to share with people listening? Yeah, I'm, I'm 64 years old, Nick. And I, I feel like, um, James Brown and I talk about this all the time. JB is a broadcaster for CBS just a great Christian man. And, and we talk about our business and what we want to do as broadcasters and how we want to represent Christ. And he always says, you know, we're in the fourth quarter of life. And so what are we going to do that's really going to be significant? Is it going to be one more broadcast? Is it going to be one more Super Bowl game? Uh, what is going to make a difference? And that's what I'm searching for. And that's what I pray about all the time now, Lord, what, what can I do uh, that's going to be significant? had a chance just in this pandemic situation, uh, Benjamin Watson, who you guys know, he called me up and he said, I've got a good friend who's a, a congressman. They're doing uh, chapel services because they have to be online now. And he'd like you to be one of the speakers. And um, it was all Republicans at first, but I called up and I said, I'd love to do it. The, one of the Democratic congressmen from Missouri knew me from when I coached with the Kansas City Chiefs. And he said, let me see if I can get some of the Democrats on. So for the first time, it was both sides on. And I talked about hearing from God, not hearing from your political party or not hearing from what people think you should t represent, but hear from the Lord. I said, that's what we need from you, you guys. Don't be Republicans. Don't be Democrats. Hear from the Lord and be and represent him to us. And so to do things like that, a, a five minute phone call that may impact 
somebody's life. That that's what I'm hoping for right now to make significant contributions to to my neighborhood, to my city, and my country. Wow. That's great. Well, you've truly been significant and had success along the way, which has been fun to watch. All right, last question, Coach. So you're a, you're a Minnesota gopher. Yes, and, sir, and I know you're a badger. And I'm a badger. I'm a, I'm a proud badger. So I think that we play for the Paul Bunyan Axe, for anybody that doesn't know out there, and the, the history has been going on for 130 years now. And, and I think it's, from what I want to say, it's like 64 wins for Wisconsin and 63 for Minnesota. Yeah. I think it's it, very it, tight. Oh. It's very tight. So we're going to have another hundred years. So out of the next hundred years, when Wisconsin, how many does Minnesota win? How many does Wisconsin win? Ooh, wow. You know what? I think it's always going to be close because that rivalry is so tight. I was two and two in my four years. Uh, wanted to win that act so badly. My last game ever in college, we lost to Wisconsin. They came over, stormed our bench, got the axe back. I, it's something I'll never forget. So yeah. I think it's always going to go on that way tight, but I'm going to give us 60 i'm gonna say 51 49 yeah, yeah, okay, all right, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I I love it. yeah you can throw the records out for sure it doesn't matter at that moment when that game is played it's always a phone so absolutely well thanks coach thanks for coming on here we appreciate your time and this is uh, coach tony dungy the hall of fame head coach thanks for coming on with us coach Thank you. And I appreciate you guys so much. You were two guys that I could point my boys to and say, be like Chris, be like Nick, and uh, know that I was leading them in the right direction. So I appreciate you guys. Love you guys for that. It means a lot, Coach. Thank you. If you'd love to interact with Nick and I, please reach out to our social medias. Our Instagram is at Mission of Truth, and our Twitter is at M of T underscore podcast. We'd love to hear from you guys and any thoughts or questions you guys have or comments. And thanks for tuning in.